this evening to the book of Nahum. Nahum chapter 3. There we will turn. We will conclude the poem by this prophet. Uh, Next week we'll move right into Zephaniah. These prophecies are told in some sequence. As a reminder, let me say that as Nahum is writing to Israel about Nineveh and also to Nineveh as a declaration of what is about to happen to them, he is using this as an instrument to call the southern kingdom Judah to renew covenant with the Lord, to keep covenant with him, and to not go the way of Nineveh. It's a warning. It's a shot across the bow to turn away from idolatry and faithlessness. And here at the close of this beautiful poem, some of its meter is lost to us when it's translated to English, is the woe that is pronounced due to the sins of Nineveh. I'll begin reading verse 1. I'll read the whole chapter. It's just 19 verses. And there conclude this book. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than no Ammon that was situated by the river, that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put your lubum, were your helpers. Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street, they cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide. Open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. I will eat you up like a locust. 
Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like the swarming locusts and your generals are like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom... Has not your wickedness passed continually? Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we would ask that you might grant to us, through the preaching of your word, a willingness and a readiness to heed the warnings that we find. For there is not a one of us here who is above your warnings. We need, even in our own lives, to hear those warnings. And so grant to us soft hearts that we might see not only the true end of sin in our lives, but the true end of sin in the lives of our neighbors, that you might give us wisdom and understanding about the days in which we live, that we might see that we too, those around us, perhaps those around us, have sinned to such a level, to such an extent, that we rightly deserve your just judgment. And so grant to us in this hour repentance. Lord, grant to our nation repentance. Grant to our neighbors repentance. Grant to our land repentance. Cause us, Lord, to mourn in dust cloth and ash. And to find at the end of that repentance a God who shows favor and forgiveness. This we pray in your name. Amen. It's been said, I can imagine, as long as there have been parents and children and as long as children grow up and they deal with that tension providing for themselves, of making decisions for themselves. At times those decisions are not great. At times there is discord between parents and children. At times it seems in the minds and the hearts of parents that their children may go astray. And those children, even as they have those hard conversations, they say, as parents give example of example of example, don't do this like so-and-so did. Don't go that way. Don't, Don't walk that way. Don't make that choice. And this, whether they say it or not, they're probably thinking it, yeah, but not me. That won't happen to me. I will be the sole rebel that is blessed in my rebellion. Yeah, right. Now, that doesn't just happen on an individual level. It happens in every level of human association. 
whether it is individuals or families that think we know how to do things better than God teaches us in Scripture, or churches, for instance, that may divest themselves or deconstruct the clear teaching of the Word of God and say, we're going to do things differently than what the Bible says. Avoid the church that says, we're doing church different. Just run. Run. Or the nation says we are not bound and bridled by the law of God. We will make a name for ourselves like the great Ozymandias, the statue that stood in the sandy desert. And there was nothing left but up to his knees. And time and memory had erased him. Such Thebes. That's what No and Mon is in verse 8, that ancient city of Thebes. Thebes, sorry. Now in that area of Alexandria, where the Nile and Egypt is, there have been many nations that have come, many nations have gone, but the people of God have stood forever. As Nahum is writing about Nineveh to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, that would be later taken into captivity because, spoiler alert, Israel does not listen They continue to worship their idols. There there was a time after this when Josiah took the throne and there was reformation and repentance. Israel would repent of their repentance just as Nineveh had. And here Nahum provides an example to a potentially rebellious child. Do you see what will come of your rebellion? And in particular, the rebellion of those who have heard the word, who, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, who have the oracles of God, who have been warned, who have been allured by God time and time again, covenantally speaking, to leave behind the idols in Israel's adultery. And so Nineveh is, not only for Israel, but for the church in every age, a warning To avoid the sins that bring destruction. And so there are three points that I want to make tonight. The first, what all sin deserves. Second, what no Ammon or Thebes shows. We said that in verses 8 through 13. We see what sins deserve in verses 1 through 7. And then thirdly, what strength accomplishes. We see that in verses 14 through 19. Let's look at that first point, though, what all sins deserve. All sins deserve, according to their due reward, condemnation. And so we find here in the first verse a woe. In fact, we see an outline of the actual sins of Nineveh in verse 1 and in verse 4. And then in verses 2 and 3, and then 5, 6, and 7... We see the Lord speaking as one who is very much against that city. This is what we read. Woe to the bloody city, that is a violent city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. Why is that? Well, modern man says what? It's because they're ancient and stupid. Right? This is how modern man thinks while they're sitting in the University of Chicago, which is ironic enough, isn't it? 
We don't live in a, oh no, we actually live in one of the bloodiest cities in the world. But when modern man thinks of ancient civilization, they think of it in this way. Of course they were savage. They were stupid. They had not yet had the gift of Marx and Darwin and Kant and Hegel and the great men of, of German enlightenment that set us free from the shackles of being beholden to false gods. Ha! This is how every current nation thinks of the nations that came before. Listen, kids, this is how you probably think in some way of your great-grandparents. How did they live? How did they call people? It took them five minutes just to dial a number. The savages... You mean they didn't have air conditioning? My dad didn't grow up with air conditioning. There were three settings on the washer machine. It's amazing how people lived. This is how we think of the generations that have come before. And this is the arrogance, not just of the world, but even evangelicals. How do you do church without amplifiers, right? We could do church without lights. It'd be a little weird as the sun sets later. But one of the things we've endeavored to do at Reformation is whether or not the power goes out, we don't skip a beat. I'm not saying that makes us morally superior, but it certainly makes things more simple. Although I did acknowledge that I had to ask Henry to turn on the soundboard there in the back, so I'm sorry. It's a bit hypocritical. But here, what the Lord lays at the feet of this city is that they are a city full of violence. Now, the reason I chose these three prophets, though you could find this in all of the prophets and in all of Scripture, is a message for every people in every age. And it hits home because it is God's word to God's people in every age as long as he tarries. And so as he writes to the bloody city... This violence is the product of what we find in verse 4. The violence is the product of religious adultery or idolatry. They have been seduced by the religion of the devil. And I don't mean black robes kind of Satanism that is often sort of published and talked about today. Just plain good old paganism. It's the kind of paganism that motivates the putting up of solar panels, right? You and I have the power through repentance and action to save the world. Now, I'm not saying that all solar panels are bad. I'm saying that right now we live in a state in which we fear the coming days because we think that the gods or Gaia or Mother Earth, whoever you, whatever you want to call her, is angry with us. And if we do not repent in dust, cloth, and ash, she's going to nail us. She's going to kill us. And how is she going to do that? By sending calamities our way. Nineveh was such a city. They didn't put up solar panels. <laughs> but what they were doing was they were trading the true worship of the invisible God... For idols. And in Psalm 115, we sang it this morning. Psalm 115 outlines this principle. That men make an idol. They worship that idol. That idol is made of wood and stone. 
That idol can be burned in the fire, and one day will be burned in the fire, and so too all who worship those idols, which leads to this principle. You become what you behold. You become what you worship. What was Nineveh worshiping? The very things that could not save them when the day of calamity arrived. And that is the principle. The principle of all of the prophets is a writing to Israel, and God is saying, you have chosen a Savior that cannot save you. Reject that one. Reject your harlotries. Reject your idolatry. Reject, reject your adultery, because this is what is about to happen. Verse 2 and 3, 5, 6, and 7. This is what the Lord says. I am, verse 5, against you. Woof. That's bad news. And not only is it bad news, but the outline of his judgment is horrendous. What he will do is not just destroy the city, he will utterly embarrass her. He will bring shame to her. Why? To make Nineveh a lesson. To make her an example. To whom? To his beloved people. So that they may see that a wayward and froward heart to the Lord is very wicked indeed and deserves his wrath and punishment. And it will come despite the fact that you amass an army. Now how will God judge Nineveh? He will use the Medes. He will use another nation. He will use means. And so when we think even of the judgment of God, and maybe you think of it this way, it's this some sort of invisible hand that just kind of sweeps through. And it, it can only be, if it's a God thing, it must not be seen. No, what God has done throughout history is to use means in order to bring about his purposes. When Jesus became a human, how did that happen? The Holy Spirit conceived, well, Mary was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ came in the form of, of a person with a reasonable soul and a reasonable body. He took upon himself flesh and blood. God uses means. He used the Assyrian Empire that Nineveh represented to take away the northern kingdom a while ago, as far in terms of the writing of Nahum. And he would use the Babylonian Empire to take away the southern kingdom in that time when they would be judged. And here, God is using means, and he will give victory to the Medes because the days of Nineveh are up. But there is always a just cause, because all sins deserve punishment. And when the Lord is against you, heaven help you. The chariot cannot help you. Your walls cannot help you. Princes cannot help you. Kings cannot help you. You will be laid waste. And that leads me then to my second point. God uses another example to show Nineveh that they cannot escape his judgment. In fact, if there's anything we can learn from history, is that God is consistent. He is consistent with the wicked and he is consistent with the righteous. And so, beginning in verse 8, he asks Nineveh this Are you better than no Ammon? or Thebes, that was situated by the river, that is the Nile River, 
that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubin were your helpers, yet what? She was destroyed. Do you think in the heyday of Thebes, when the king would walk around the ramparts of that castle and say, our days sure are numbered? No. It was when they were strong that we were take, they were taken into captivity. And they were themselves humiliated. Why? Well, for the same reasons that Nineveh will be. Because they had rejected the voice of God. Because they had repented of their repentance. Because they had apostatized. That means they confessed Christ... They believed in the promise of the Messiah when Jonah went to them a hundred years earlier and they repented in dustcloth and ash. But a hundred years had passed. Four generations. And they had strayed from the word of God. Think for a moment what things are like in our culture 100 years ago. The year would have been 1923. My grandmother would have been four years old. <laughs> My grandfather, three. And I can imagine 1923 in America, in terms of that which was acceptable, was very different than 2023. Why is that? <clears throat> it is because we have become, in many ways, unshackled from the standard that protects it protects the innocent, it protects the guilt, well, it punishes the guilty, and it brings about, in many respects, a kind of order. Now, think about 1923 and 100 years before that, and just 100 years before that. In fact, the world isn't actually very old when you think of it. About 6,000 years, God spoke and the world came into existence. And men like Adam lived almost through a sixth of the history of the world. What do you think he saw? He saw great wickedness. He saw those things that were beautiful, those things that were wicked. Dear saints, we have opportunity to go back and think for a moment, as God was calling Judah to think for a moment of themselves and what all sins deserve. And whether we are strong or not, strength does not matter. Size does not matter. God will bring judgment. And for those who have no suitable place to hide, death will come. By suitable place, I want you to think of Egypt. In that moment when the angel of death passed through every street of that major empire... And he visited every house in that nation. And only those who had the blood of a lamb painted on the lintel of their door survived. But all who said, I reject the warnings of Almighty God. Now, let's be clear. This was the last plague. They had already had several that had warned them, you need to get in line. You need to worship the God of Israel. You need to worship I am, yod heh vah or as we say, Yahweh. He is the true God. And time and time again, Yahweh proved to Israel and he proved to Egypt, I am the only true God. And Pharaoh did what? 
He stood his ground. He hardened his heart. And he said, no, I will not let them go. And on that night, Pharaoh's own son was taken from him. And not much longer after Israel fled from that, well, fled, they marched triumphantly out of Egypt. They paraded out of Egypt. They had been set free. And they came to the border of that great sea, the Red Sea. And Pharaoh repented of his contrition. And the Egyptian army marched to the border of that sea. God led Israel through. Egypt followed them and God wiped out that army with a flood. Why? Why were they dashed to pieces? How were they brought low? Because God is faithful to honor his covenant people. And what no Ammon shows is that there is no nation that is more mighty than the Lord. And there is no nation that can exalt themselves over the Lord's anointed. Because as Thebes went, so will go Nineveh as well. They will be drunk, they will be hidden, they will seek refuge, and there will be no refuge. They will not find it. The hour of their judgment is ripe. Like if you go up to a tree and it is shaken and the fruit just falls off, they are that weak. Their judgment is that close. Dear saints, we ought not to trust in the instruments in the power, in the walls, in the schemes of men, as those who belong to Christ and see the judgment coming, and not just for us, around us, but in times past, right? God calls Judah to look at Nineveh and be warned. God is saying to Nineveh, I'm going to do to you just as I did this ancient empire. He's always saying, look, 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 and be warned. And how many times has God done that? In his grace and in his mercy, he unfolds for us what he has done. And so then Nahum comes to that last point. In verses 14 through 19, the point that he makes regarding their strength and what it accomplishes is nothing. It is like the rich man in the Gospels who builds barns and silos. And he says to himself, soul... In these things we are secure. And in a moment they were gone. And he had nothing. Now what the Bible is not teaching is that wealth is bad. What the Bible is teaching is that if you say to your soul, soul, you have security in the stuff of this earth, then you are an idolater. If you have security in an army, which none of us have, if you have security in what little you may have in your bank account, which probably describes most of us now, there is no security there. In fact, the only security that can be found in heaven or on earth is to belong to the people whom God calls his treasured possession. And the only way that you might belong to that city, that heavenly city that we call Zion, is to call truce, to call peace. It is to call Christ Lord and to ask of him that he might grant you entry as one who is covered and redeemed by his blood. And so the gospel, even from that moment in Exodus, has never changed. It has always only ever been get beneath the blood-stained lintel. 
Because as God builds a kingdom that cannot be shaken, he is shaking the stuff of earth so that that which is attached to him, that which cannot be shaken, might endure. And the only way that you and I can survive the shaking, that we might not be like the fig that drops off the tree, but might remain fast, ever fixed, steadfast, and secure, is to not be a dweller of Nineveh, but a dweller of Zion. That we might have our home in that heavenly city. Because there is nothing that men can design nor do that is able to deliver us from the judgment of God. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, we read this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of this age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He is writing to those who have heard who know what makes the judgment of Nineveh so great is that God had invited them into his covenant people. They had heard the word. They had repented. They had tasted the good word of God. They had heard of the powers of the age to come. What do you think Jonah's message was? It was kiss the sun. He had the Psalms. But then to fall away, dear saints, we who have heard the gospel, who have heard the warnings, who know what is coming, what are we to do? We are to find our home in Christ. Otherwise, what is in store? Look at verse 19. The final sentence against this city is a bleak one. But it is the only sentence that can be pronounced against those who refuse the salvation that God promises and offers, but only through the king of heaven and earth. This is it. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. And all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? What is it? Well, the second part reads of relief. Right? Your team is one, and they have lost. They have been scattered from the field. They have been humiliated. This clapping is a clapping of rejoicing. And it is done by whom? Only by those who see the perishing of the wicked, and for them it is good. Because it means an end to what? To the struggle, to the fight. And one day, in the last day of human history, when Christ will come and he will judge the living and the dead... This will be that day. It will be just like this. That for those who have not found salvation in Christ, there will be no healing. But for those who do, or those who have found hope and salvation in Christ, we will rejoice because we will be afflicted no more by the Ninevites. But for now, and until that day, there is a warning and there is an offer. 
There is a warning to those who are in danger, and there is an offer that accompanies it, and that is this. God is even now waiting, and he is patient, and he tarries for this purpose, that all who, even at this hour, may be dwellers in the city of Nineveh, might become, by grace, converted, transformed, redeemed, and made to be dwellers in the city of Zion. Let's pray. Lord, even now...